to convert something is to change something. It's to alter it. It's to take something. It's not to just shift something. It's not to paint something. It's to take something which was once meant for something and change it into something else. To be converted is not simply to receive a new title. It's to experience real, dynamic, drastic change. And unfortunately, in today's Christianity, um, I'm really great. I'm, I'm looking forward to an America that is increasingly hostile towards Christianity. Because as Christianity has had no opposition, it's really become kind of culturally savvy to self-identify as Christian. And the motto has been, come as you are, which is good. That is the gospel. The gospel isn't get cleaned up and then come to Jesus. The gospel is bring him your brokenness and Jesus changes you. However, that, that second part of the mantra has been dropped. And the message is now, come as you are, change if you want to. Change if you feel led to. Change if it's convenient to you. But that's not how the Bible views conversion. That's not how the Bible talks about being converted and changed to Jesus. In fact, time and time again in the New Testament, we see Paul giving commands and really firm suggestions and guidelines to living, but basing it on a therefore. Basing it on the gospel that he spent time explaining. For instance, I'm going to look at them up here because there are too many for me to mark in my Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your neighbor is not in vain. The next one is 2 Corinthians 5.11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We don't persuade others because it's nice. We don't persuade others because it's something you should do. We persuade others because we're convinced of the gospel. It's a result. Galatians 5.1 says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. There's the gospel. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Command rooted in the gospel. Ephesians 4.1 says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Therefore, because of the gospel, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Colossians 2.6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. 1 Peter 4.1, in case you haven't seen this trend yet. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, that's the gospel, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, that's the gospel, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Gospel produces a different life of how we think about sin. See, so if you take away one thing tonight, this is it. The gospel changes people. It really, really, really changes people. So when you think of your life, do you really believe that the gospel has the power to change you? When you think of your sin, your shortcomings, your struggles, your thoughts, do you trust that it can do that? Does your life prove that the gospel has the power to do that? Because here's what we're going to see tonight. It's really simple. Two of my favorite verses in the whole Bible are Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is what we're going to see. If the gospel is the power of conversion, and there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved, the gospel is what converts us. If the gospel is the power of conversion, then the gospel produces converted and converting people. Conversion converts, okay? It's like, it's like science things in here now. Is that what science talks about? Stoichiometry and 
stats. Um, but that, that's simple. We get that. Conversion produces change. It produces ongoing change. And change is something everyone wants. Right now, Donald Trump is platforming to make America great again. He wants to change it. Hillary wants to change it. Bernie wants to change it. Marco wants to change it. Ted wants to change it. Everybody wants change. In your life, you want change. Every year, we're going to make New Year's resolutions until you die because we all want change. But I can tell you true change, real change, lasting change, change not just from one shape to another color of shape, but change from one shape to another, change from one sphere to a different sphere, change for the better can only come from one place. And that's what we're going to start by looking at tonight. This is the context of change. Paul's going to give us the context of change. How do we think about change? And for the remaining three chapters of this book, Paul's going to be really practical with us. He's going to start making you uncomfortable. He's going to invade your personal bubble where you say, this is how I live my life. This is how I like to live my life. This is where I'm comfortable. Paul's going to be the close talker. He's, he's going to get up in your face. and He's going to lean on how you live. Um, and so because of that, we need to understand how we're going to live the way Paul's telling us to live. Change doesn't happen because you're a strong, determined, wonderful person. I saw Kanye tweeted today um, something about how much he just loves himself. I just want people to know how much I love myself. I'm like, first of all, how is that supposed to be like, like when some people say that, it's like, oh, that's really sweet. When Kanye says it, you're like, that's just arrogant, man. Um, you, you made an album called Yeezus, okay? We know how much you love yourself. But how much you love yourself doesn't make you change. How wonderful and important and special and how strong you are doesn't allow you to change. How does the Bible tell you you can change? He begins with this. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. See, Paul's making an appeal here. He's appealing to what he just said, and now he's, he's, he's bringing the emotions in. He's trying to draw us in. He's fighting for change. But he doesn't say, I appeal to you on your newfound knowledge. I appeal to you on your newfound strength. I appeal to you on your growing church. I appeal to you on behalf of being in Rome, the most powerful city in the empire. I appeal to you so that you might change by the means of man's might. He says, I appeal to you according to the mercies of God that you may change, that you may do something. I love how the word mercy is actually pluralized. It's plural. We've looked at the gospel, and here he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. You know how they test, and I learned this when I went wedding ring shopping for my wife, um, real, fake diamonds from real diamonds, or what makes an impure diamond to what makes a pure diamond, is they see how many ways a diamond could grab light and reflect it. The more ways light can reflect off the inner cuts of a diamond, the more authentic it is, the more valuable it is, the more beautiful it is. If light can only come in one way and reflect one way, if to make that diamond shimmer, you're up here trying to get the light in at the right way, that's not a valuable piece. But if just walking through a field in, in summer and sun hits it and it glows and shimmers, that proves the worth of the diamond. 
Paul has just spent 11 chapters saying there is one gospel, there is one Savior, there is one way, but the mercies of God are endless. The beauty of the gospel reflection, reflections in your life, refractions, is that right? Refractions? I think it's right. Are limitless. God's not giving you one thing to help you. He's given you one channel which holds an infinite amount of mercy. And God's mercies are far more effective to bring real change to your conversion than any power of man's might or any fortitude of your mind. So you look how Paul rebukes the people in Galatia for trying to change out of their own power. Galatians 3.3 Are you so foolish? I like that right before, only a verse before that he says, Oh foolish Galatians, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul's saying here, he's frustrated because he sees these people in Galatia who know they need the gospel to be saved. They know they need Jesus on the cross. They know they need him to take away their sin, but they don't see that same gospel as valuable for living as a saved person. They see it as the doorway you go through and then it's just, you're looking for it. It's the diploma you get and it sits on your shelf and you never touch it again for the rest of your life. Maybe you take it out when you have a bunch of people together who went to the same school or you want to prove that you're valuable. You bring out that diploma and you show it around, but really it doesn't change your life. But how often do we live this way? How often are we the foolish Galatians where we see the gospel as needed for belief? We see the gospel as necessary for salvation, but once we're inside that belief... I got it from here. I can change because I'm strong. I can change because I want to. I can base my life on things not rooted in the gospel. You see, I actually heard someone uh, take up issue with uh, a church recently because all of their songs sang about the cross. They said at some point that gets boring. So we can agree that the cross is synonymous with the gospel. That's where the gospel, that's the good news. So I want to ask you, pop quiz, which book in the history of mankind talks about the gospel the most? The, the Bible, okay, good job. All right, two claps for you. The Bible talks about the gospel more than any other book. And to whom are the majority of New Testament books written to? What type of organization? A church. Okay, so the gospel is in the Bible. The Bible is given to churches, and churches, especially when going to a church meant that you probably were going to be murdered, churches were filled with what kind of people? Christians. So, final question. I want to ask you, this is a big question. In God's wise and infinite providence in his wonderful doctrine of revelation in giving us his holy word who did he think needed to be reminded of the gospel over and over and over and over and over and 66 books on three different continents in three different languages over 1200 years needed to be reminded of the gospel Christians, Christian, you are not past the gospel. You have not mastered the gospel. 
The gospel is not your entrance ticket and then it's to be discarded. Don't get me wrong. Gospel change will not always be quick. Gospel change will not be easy. It will not always be uh, welcomed or friendly by your non-Christian friends or family. But let me make this clear. True change, real change can only come from the gospel. You will not substantially be changed for the better by anything in this world apart from the gospel. For as Paul who writes Romans says in Philippians, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now I've used this word change a lot today. It sounds like I'm a presidential candidate. Everyone wants change, but what does change really mean? What does change look like? When we talk about being converted, what are we really talking about? Because Paul makes it clear. We just saw it in Romans 4. You're converted when you believe. You're saved when you cast your trust on Jesus and his death becomes your death and your sin goes to him and his righteousness goes to us. It's the worst used car deal in the history of the world. Jesus gets your sin, we get his righteousness. You're saved. At that moment, something happens inside of you. That's justification. That's being declared righteous by faith in Christ. It's instantaneous. But that's not the only change necessary. It's not. And I believe in salvation by faith alone. And so does Jesus. But Jesus, more than anyone else in all of the Bible, makes it clear that his true followers produce fruit. He uses this analogy a lot. We saw it last year when we went through the book of Mark. This analogy of a fig tree. And he says that being a fig tree is not enough unless you produce figs. You shouldn't... Great, you're a fig tree. By nature, you're a fig tree. That's fantastic. But do something. Produce something. Show us something. You know what separates a fig tree from firewood? Figs. You know what separates a true Christian from a false Christian? Change. Change isn't what saves us, but change is proof that we are indeed converted. And so, because of that, the Bible, and this isn't legalism, and Jesus himself, in case the Bible wasn't good enough, it's God's word, gives us benchmarks for change. It allows us to look at our lives and see, are we acting converted? Are we living converted? Are we being changed? And tonight we see three tests that Paul gives us to test our change, to test our conversion. Are we really living a converted life or are we just floating through, hoping to make it on the other side? The first benchmark we see, we see in Romans 12:1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So this is the first test. This is the service test. I use service because um, there's actually in, what translation did you read from, Garrett? The NET, the Net Bible. Um, I, do, I only know it as the Net Bible. No one says NET. Get with it, man. <laughs> um, but but th there's actually no service word in your ESV translation. But that's because the New Testament uses two words to describe worship. Two words that are often described worship in the New Testament. Two Greek words. Um, the first one is proskuneo, 
And that proskuneo word um, means worship in terms of laying prostrate, like laying down, falling on your face, amazed at God's glory, great adoration, emotional surrender, heartfelt sincerity, this overwhelming nature that brings us to our knees. We see that a lot when we see Revelation. There's a lot of proskuneo worship going on in heaven where we see Jesus. And that's where um, Jesus is our father. We get, the Bible talks about that a lot. But we also need to use biblical language when we talk about it. There's one song um, that we actually took out of rotation. I don't know if it was before Johnny was here or after Johnny was here. Uh, but the, the reprieve was, I'm running to your arms, I'm running to your arms. Have you read Revelation? <laughs> what happens when we see Jesus? It's not like, Jesus, and we run to him. It's like, we're going to die, and we fall before him. And by his grace, he says, you are my child whom I love. But the glory of God will bring us to our knees, and it's going to be awkward, scary. But it'll be fantastic when we realize that it's like the the question that they ask um, about Aslan in Narnia. Um, I can't think of the question now. Is Is he safe? No, but he's good. That's our God. That's proskuneo worship. The second word, which is the word that is used here, um, is lateria. And this word actually is worship in regards to service rendered. It's, it's kind of a ceremonial word, that you're doing something. You see, Paul is urging us here, and that's why in Garrett's translation, um, and actually in some of your Bibles, it, rather than spiritual worship, it's footnoted as rational service. Um, because worship and spiritual aren't the actual words used there, but it's a a good translator rendering of the Greek word. But here he's urging us to offer your body as a living sacrifice. That's already a paradox. Sacrifices die, but we're living. A living sacrifice as a spiritual act of worship, specifically in regards to service. The first benchmark of change is how do you use your life to serve Jesus and others? Where does that show up? And and, and in that, as I said, the translation is often rational service. Paul's saying that this is something willful. Where proskuneo is sometimes this this just natural reaction to the glory where we fall. It's willful. It's the result of seeing the worth and weight of something and desiring to serve it and longing to glorify it. And it takes commitment. It does. It does. It takes commitment from you to be someone who serves God and serves others. And the interesting thing is later on in this passage, um, Paul is going to talk about our mind. He talks about that in verse 2 that we're going to look at. Um, and there's, there's some Greek words that are often used when talking about the person, which is translated as body, and it means the whole person. Your rational thoughts, your soul, your body, your flesh. But here, this word specifically just basically means corpse. Paul is really just talking about your body here. And you can't divorce the two. We're not bodies and souls. We're a body which has a soul. But here Paul is, in terms of emphasis, he's saying, what are you doing physically with your life? Physically, where do you see this? And it can become really easy to think of Christian service as something that's done in our minds and our hearts, right? I worship God and I serve God because I love him and I want to evangelize, and I want to change, and I see the beauty, and I see the power, but what Paul's telling us here is God is concerned about your body and what you do with it. 
It's not this debate. I went to a Christian school. Your body's a temple. Don't get tattoos. That's not what God's concerned about here. What God's concerned about is how are the most tangible aspects of who you are given over in willful service to Christ? Because Christ has redeemed our bodies. You see, what Paul's saying here was really uh, scandalous to Greek thought because they thought the body was evil and the spirit is good. But Jesus died to redeem our body. When Jesus was resurrected, he had a real body. People touched him. He ate food. Crowds interacted with him. When you are resurrected, because it says Jesus is the first fruit, when we follow the resurrection that Jesus had, you will have a real body. The new heavens and the new earth are not a bunch of people sitting on clouds playing harps with fake fingers. It's us in real bodies doing real things for the service and glory of God. This means that when we think about Christianity, we shouldn't think of it as only a spiritual or immaterial way of living. It's not only a thought change. It's not only a worship change. It's a real change. It encompasses all that you are. What you do physically with your life matters to God. He's not unconcerned with your job or your relationship or your finances. He wants that. Our lives are purchased in service to the king who saved us. An easy way, how do we diagnose this? Oftentimes in Christian circles, they give three ways. And I think it's good ways. They talk about your time, your talents, and your treasures. The three most external aspects of who we are. How are you really physically, externally, observably using your time to serve God and others? This week, uh, it's been a week since our last GCF. If someone followed you around for a week on mute, what would they see as important to you? Where do you show up? Where do you not show up? Those are important things. What is our body doing in a week? How are we spending our time? And are you spending it in a way where it's a service to God and a help to others? This week, what have you spent your skills and your passions on? God's given you gifts. He's given you desires. Have you spent those only on yourself? Or are you spending those in service of God, in service to the church, in service of others? Where are you spending your money? If someone looked at your, well, you don't have checkbooks now. That's what people used to say. If someone looked at your bank card statement, where would they see your worship? God's not unconcerned with that. The whole of who we are, even the most external aspects are given to God. And see, here's the thing. Many of us, when we get to heaven, will have, we'll have physical atrophy. <laughs> Because we're going to have a real body and we're going to have wrong ways to spend that body. But our bodies aren't going to know how to serve God well because we've never done it on earth. When we get to heaven, I want my body to be conditioned to be offered as a sacrifice and rational service to God. In the most external things in your life, where right now do you see willful service to Jesus? That's a sign or a symbol of where you need to change in your conversion. First test is the service test. The second test is the eye test. We see this Romans 12, 2, just the very first part, just one phrase. Do not be conformed to this world. There's a really big assumption in this text. That is that God has made us malleable creatures. 
What I mean by that is God has made us able to be formed. He's made us creatures of counsel. In the garden, God, God created us. He could have programmed us with a chip that says, this is how you should act, and now you're self-sufficient. But instead, he spoke to us. He knew we needed to be, to be guided. And instead of following God's counsel, we were shaped in a real way by the counsel of the devil. We were made to be shaped, to be formed by external things. This means that each and every one of you, in some way, in many ways, are already being formed by something. You're not strong enough to shape yourself. You're a product of the system. And there are so many systems in our life, we can't even blame one of them. That means you're not ultimate. You're not God. And that means that you need to be aware and you need to be cautious of the influences that are actively shaping people who were made to be shaped. That's why Paul gives this as a command. It's not, hey, you should be careful. It's do not be conformed to this world. Do not look like this world. Do not talk like this world. Do not smell like this world. Do not act like this world. You should be visibly different from this world. And yet, that conformity to the world is exactly what the world wants to do. But there's this dichotomy. John says the world and its desires are passing away. They'll never fulfill anything. But at the same time, Peter says, your enemy, the devil, um, who Jesus says is the ruler of this world, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's hooking people to empty promises day after day after day after day. And it's funny. For some reason, why no for a reason? It's because we have good community in churches. Um, you get people who join churches just because they want to use it as a networking opportunity for some sort of pyramid scheme. And that typically comes to your attention as a pastor. And so they'll go out to lunch with you like, man, I, I had somebody email me wanting to join my community group. And I was super skeptical because the, the line she used was, hey, I moved to the Bitterit Valley. I started my own business. And I'm just looking for groups of people where I can meet nice people and make friends. And I'm like, bah, 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 bah. what do you want to sell me? Right? You've all had moments like that where you're sitting with someone and the conversation starts to take a turn like, hey, have you ever considered making a bunch of money? Do you want to make 60 grand a year sitting on the couch? And everything they say from that point on is like, what are you trying to sell me? What do I need to be aware of? But it's funny because here we sit with somebody selling us Amway and we're terrified about it. But when the world starts to offer us stuff, Man, we don't have any of that pushback. We're blind to it. We don't care. We don't test it. We don't press its desires. We become mindless with it. I don't question its motivation. When was the last time, be honest, think about these questions. When was the last time you asked yourself, not because it was a good movie or a bad movie, but because of what happened in this movie, should I watch this movie? Should I be in this place? Should I cross this line? Is this conforming me to God or to the world? If we could be honest, if I could be honest, I don't ask myself that question very much. But that doesn't mean I'm away from the world's influence. You see, we're so mindless 
in the way in which we interact with this world. But Paul is so clear, despite our naivety, that we shouldn't look like the world. And yet so often we say, well, we need to engage the world to win the world. Man, Jesus engaged the world, but no one was more distinct than Jesus. Okay? You don't, if you start getting crowds of thousands and thousands of people to follow you, uh, then maybe we could talk about whether or not you're engaging people well or poorly. Okay? But until then, we need to understand that we should live in this world. We should engage this world. We should be a part of this world. We should know this world, but at the same time, we should be distinct from this world. Why? Because we know the world, its desires, and what it's offer are not ultimate to us anymore. That's not our identity. That's not our joy. That's not our peace. Diagnostic questions. Do you look like the world? The place where I find myself, maybe you guys join me in here, the place I find myself wrestling with this the most is in regards to entertainment. The TV shows and movies that I watch, the movies and TV shows that I even enjoy are sometimes contrary to what God has said is in my best interest. And the Bible warns us about impure jokes. The Bible warns us about foolish thoughts. The Bible warns us about coarse language. Paul says about all three of those things and a list more have nothing to do with these things. They have no place among God's people. Um, it was two nights ago, Monday, Monday, Tuesday night. Sarah and I, we turned on a TV show um, that we've really enjoyed. We think it's funny, uh, but it's gotten increasingly sexualized. Just sexual humor, like every joke is coming back to a sex joke. Um, but it was still funny, and there's still things we wanted to watch. And we started it, and we made it five minutes in, and I turned it off. I said, I'm not watching this anymore. Now let me tell you, in my 26 years of existence, that's the first time I've ever done that. That shouldn't be. Part of it's because I was preparing for the sermon. And you know, that's because there are some things that the world looks at and laughs that Christians should look at and it should break our heart rather than stimulate our joy. Are you distinct there? When you think about dating and relationships, are you conformed to thinking that you should date and you should relate to people because that's what we do? Are you empty and blind with that? When you're in relationships and you are dating someone, when you think about boundaries, who shapes your boundaries? Is your only boundary as a Christian dating that you shouldn't have sex? If so, you've already lost. The Bible's boundary isn't just don't have sex and you're good. It's care for someone, not use them. It's fight for purity, not fight for indulgences. And yet so common we think if we've made it through our dating relationship, we're mindless in how we get into dating. We, why do we date? No one knows why you date. That's the number one question that stumps people when they come to me and they say, why do you want to date? I say, why do you want to date? They're like, Duh. They can't think of anything. But then when we're in dating, don't just be like, well, we made it to our wedding night and we didn't have sex. That's great. You lost a ton of battles before you got there. You could have dated extremely poorly. You could have harmed worship. You could have been making out with somebody else's wife at that point. He didn't fight for purity. And he didn't glorify God. I can tell you the three biggest things you guys will fight for right now that will look like the world inside the church, people your age specifically, is your entertainment, your relationship, and your plans. 
So many times our plans sound exactly like the world's plans. What do you want? You want what the world wants. You want fame? No one, not, none of us in here are, can, are like worried that we're not going to be on a billboard someday or in a movie. But we want fame in our own right. We want to be known. We want money. We want to live comfortably. We want to have all the luxuries of the world. We want to be well thought of. We want to leave a legacy. These are all good things. But we have a different hope. We've been converted. We now see with new eyes the fallacy and the failures of this world. I love this quote. One commentator on this text said this, and apply this to your own life. If all our calculations, plans, and ambitions are determined by what falls within life here, then we are children of this age. See, why is it, so I'm not trying to guilt trip you, I'm just using this as an as a example that's here tonight. Why is it we struggle to think about moving away for two months and spending time learning about the gospel, working and evangelizing? It's because it sacrifices things. And a lot of times, what seems like the greater sacrifice for us is to give up the desires of the world. But we believers, uh, have more to gain than we will ever lose. Paul says this, Colossians 3, 1 through 11. It's a big text. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the gospel. Put to death, therefore. We don't change ever apart from the gospel. What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. This leads us to the last test tonight, where Paul paints this dichotomy between these two things. We look at the worship test. This is the full text of Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, this is where legalism comes to die. People look at what Paul says, which is ironic that Paul would ever be called a legalist um, because he's railing on legalism. Paul tells us what to do. We shouldn't be, who tells Christians what to do? The gospel tells us what to do. And they see like commands as something that's bad. Legalism isn't do something. Legalism is do something to amass a list of what you've done. Okay. And this is where legalism goes to die. Because a lot of people find confidence in their faith by what they, they abstain from. They look at do not be conformed to the world and they say, man, I don't do those things. That means I'm saved. But here's the thing, a lot of you do that by accident. 
A lot of us abstain from things by accident. It's no grounds of your holiness. It's no proof of the gospel. You see, I'm, I, I got drunk once in my life and I hated it. And I never want to get drunk again. I haven't been drunk more than once in my life. But it's not out of a desire for holiness. It's because I hated it. You could say, you know what? I've never watched a movie with nudity before. But that could be because you don't have a DVD player. That doesn't make you a saint. You see what I mean? We can do things which are good, but unless it's driven, supplanted by, and motivated through the gospel, it's not real change. You see, the command of biblical change is not only to be conformed to the world, but also to be conformed to Jesus himself. And the great thing about this text is that um, it says, do not be conformed, but be transformed. That verb is passive. That means that he's not saying you, transform. He's saying, I'm going to transform you. I'm going to change you. You see, no one is able to change into Christ. You can't do it. If I stand here before you today and I said, act like Christ, and that's the only commands you got, you'd be miserable. But Christ has kindly, through the gospel, began the process of changing us into him more and more by pressing the gospel into our hearts day by day by day by day. You see, we should seek to resist sin not accidentally. We should seek to resist sin willingly because we're driven by the joy of the gospel being of better promise than the promises of the world. We should seek to be changed, to be transformed, to be presented differently because we are obsessed with weighing our life choices, our life desires, our affections, our plans, our joys, and our relationships in the worth power and might of the gospel to make decisions and life changes apart from the gospel is not to change Christianly because it's not to change at all but to consciously bathe every aspect of your life and how the cross of Jesus being ransomed by the death of an innocent savior changes you that changes everything you see this word they use here uh, for transformed is metamorpho in Greek, metamorphosis. And it's only used three times in the New Testament. It's used once when we see Jesus transfigured into his heavenly state. That's a fantastic change. It's used once here in Romans 12, 2. And it's used a third time in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, where it says this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, this change, this metamorphosis of conversion is more than a change of mind. It's more than a change of conviction. It's more than a change of belief or a change of social engagement. This transformation from one thing to something completely new is something divine, and it is the joy of God himself to do it. 
When we look at Romans 12, 1 through 2, you're responsible for two things. You are responsible for presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice. You're responsible for serving Him. You're responsible for taking the effort. God is not going to resist sinful choices for you. You need to do that. You need to fight. You need to resist. You need to try. You need to change. You need to turn. But God is responsible God is willing and God is zealous to ground your hope, your power, and your ability to do these these things in the great transformation that comes from the gospel. You see, this whole passage, which gets at the core, if every Christian did these two verses perfectly, man, that'd be great. But these two verses are beautifully bookmarked by the gospel. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present yourself. And at the end we see again, you will be transformed by the glory of God. The gospel brings us there. Our effort helps us. And as we fight, the gospel comes back. It's this beautiful, divine, perpetual motion machine to engage us and to encourage us by reminding us what Christ has already accomplished in our life. And the wonderful conclusion of this, why is this the best news you've heard this week? Is because this discernment He says, you will then be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's the reality. Most Christians don't become Christians and then stop changing simply because they don't want to change. People become Christian and then they fail to change because they see what the world offers. They see their old habits. They see their old way of living as what is good, as what is acceptable, and what is perfect. I'm happy here. I'm content here. I've found something real here. Why would God call me to leave it? But by the grace of God, when we begin to know and be changed by the gospel, you begin to see with greater clarity what is really good, what is really acceptable, and what is really perfect. Not only in a salvific sense, but in every meaning of the word good, in every meaning of the word acceptable, in every meaning of the word perfect. This, Paul says, is the will of God in your life. God wants you to know the joys of serving Him day in and day out, in your bodies, in your minds, in what you do and don't do. You see, Paul says you'll know the will of God. And certainly God has a detailed, specific, in Acts 17, he says he planned the places you will live, the size of your house, and the the places you will go. God has a detailed plan for your life and he could have given that to us, but he chose not to. Instead, he's given us the details of a different will. God could have chosen to animate a Google Maps page in front of your life, turn here, turn there. But instead, God chose to animate your soul. He chose to teach you how to act for what is good. God wants you. What is the will of God in your life? God wants you to believe in him. 
God wants you to be converted and he wants to, you to live a life of choosing, doing, and knowing the joy, grace, and love which comes from the grace of knowing through the gospel what is really good, what is really acceptable, and what is really perfect. You see, we can't move past the gospel because the gospel gives us truth in each moment. The only way you'll have hard things happen to you and be able to see anything good and acceptable and perfect is not because you invent some perfect silver lining to a rain cloud is because you're able to see the gospel infused in the whole of your life. It is only through the gospel that you'll be able to discern truth from non-truth, joy from, from, from sorrow, suffering from peace, satisfaction from falsity. This is what changes us. And by God's grace, you will continue to be changed. This is why we believe in Summer Project. This is why we believe in preaching. This is why we believe in church. This is why we believe in community groups. For if GCF is a group converted by the gospel, we will be a group which serves our campus with our bodies, with our decisions, and with our worship because we cannot disassociate the gospel of God from our lives because that gospel is the essential driving force of conversion in our lives. That's the life of the converted. That's the good life that God has bought us to. So let's be converted on campus in what we do with our bodies and what we abstain from with our persons and how we worship and bathe our entire lives in the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we might be able to as GCF, be able to discern by the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Lord, we want that for two reasons. We want that one, because that is how your kingdom will flourish. That is how disciples will be made. That is how converts will be truly converted. That is how people who, will who are dead will come to life. That is how people who were not, not a people will be made into a people. That is who people who did not believe will come to believe. But Lord, on a selfish and personal note, when we are able to distinguish what is good and acceptable and perfect, we will have a life which is good, acceptable, and perfect to you. And that's the joy of being a saved, converted believer in Jesus. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Amen.